0: Welcome back to another episode of Royals Review Radio. My name is Alex Duvall. I'm your host, uh, joined as always tonight by Jeremy Greco. Jeremy, um, we've had some big news come across the board since the last time we've spoken uh, that that Saturday about a week and a half ago. How are we doing? And um, how are we? How are we uh, reacting and anticipating this this new big move by the Royals for an office?
1: Uh, you know, uh. I'd love to say something intelligent, but uh, I, I, my computer died. Uh, and so I just got a new one. So I have no idea what's been going on. You want me to follow the news without a computer? I, I don't think so. So I, I don't no. I, I did hear about uh, the, the promotion of J.J. Piccolo to GM and Dayton Moore to president. And to that, I say, okay. So that's, that's my, my thoughts on that.
0: Fair enough. Um, we are also joined tonight by the editor-in-chief of Royals Review, Max Reaper. Max, um, how are we doing tonight?
2: Doing good, Alex. How are you?
0: Doing well. Uh, also joined tonight by Jordan. Are we? The, are you the the editor, the site manager for Inside the Royals over at SI? Man, you can
3: call me whatever the heck you want, Alex. I, I'm happy to be here, man.
0: All right. I'm going to call you the captain hook of Inside the Royals over at Sports <laughs> Um really, really good work. If you guys aren't familiar, I know it's it's relatively new. I don't know how many how long you guys have been up for, but it feels like within the last six months. Mm-hmm. Um, Sports Illustrated launched. Well, you got SI Inside the Chiefs, and then also Inside the Royals. Um, a couple of um of sites that Sports Illustrated is offering now, doing team coverage. So if you're not familiar, go over to Inside the Royals. You can follow Jordan on Twitter. Jordan, what's your Twitter handle? Uh
3: footnoted F-O-O-T-E-N-O-T-E-D. Shout out to uh uh, our good friend Josh Briscoe for, for coming up with that.
0: That's outstanding. So um, praying for Josh tonight as well. But also go, you can go follow uh, Jordan's work over there inside the Royals, a relatively new website covering the Kansas City Royals. So, uh, gentlemen, we're going to workshop a little bit of, of some happenings of the Royal system tonight, get to some mailbag questions here in a minute. Max, I want to start with you tonight. Um, J.J. Piccolo is the new general manager of the Royals, Dayton Moore, has moved into the role of the president of baseball operations. I, for one, am of the opinion that this does actually change some things. I know there's, there's the take out there that, oh, this doesn't change anything. It's just a title change and nothing will actually change. I disagree, and I think we can go back to the 2019 offseason into the 2020 season before we ever knew the pandemic would cancel part of the Major League Baseball season the entire minor league baseball season. And I think we can see tangible change in the approach at which they've, they've done a few things to suggest that the, the way they will run things under JJ Piccolo will be fundamentally different under Dayton Moore. I still think Dayton Moore will obviously have the final sign. He'll sign the paychecks. He'll sign off on all the trades they make and, and, and things of that nature. But I really do think we're going to see some, some tangible change under Piccolo. Uh, I'm curious to get your take.
2: No, I think that's a really good, a really smart way of looking at it. And I, and I do, I would note that John Sherman, when he talked at the press conference, really emphasized JJ Piccolo's like background in data science, data technology, how instrumental he was, and and that was kind of emphasized. Like the turnaround in minor league development was under Piccolo's watch, and I thought was a big part of why uh, they felt he was was uh, the man for the job, uh, the GM job. But I also understand. I think. You know look date moore is still going to have final say on things and what i've read so far about like how they're going to make decisions um makes me think that Dayton moore is still going to kind of have a big say and look he can't not have a big say uh and i don't know jeremy if it was you that made this point but like date moore is a ring uh, date moore has been in baseball a really well respected guy in baseball for 12 or 20 years Uh, He's the man that really plucked J.J. Piccolo out of Georgia Mason and got him a job in baseball. You can't help but not be influenced by him significantly. And he's been at Dave Morris' hip for the last 15 years, you know, running the Royals. And so I do think there's probably some, uh, you know, a a lot of ways they probably already share a mind as far as how they want to run a team, what a team should look like, what a ball player should look like. Um, But I think you did make a good point that, you know, J.J., is, is perhaps more newer school than Dayton Moore in a lot of ways. And perhaps we could see that, that a lot more of that. And that's part in, and, and just the fact that he was elevated to this role is kind of a uh, acknowledgement that that part of the game is more important now than it was. Um, so, you know, we'll, I'm still kind of the, you know, let's wait and see mode, but, um, but yeah, I think overall, this is a good thing. I think having, having a consistency uh, and look, you can argue about Dayton Moore's track record all you want. Um, but this this organization is a lot more stable than it was before he got here. Um, it definitely seems like they're they're in moving in the right direction, and we'll see. You know, this this maybe this group won't work out, and we won't know that for a couple of years. But I think they've kind of you know uh, bought themselves an opportunity to see this through it, and I think JJ presents the best opportunity to not only have some consistency with organizational leadership, but also maybe kind of take things in a different direction, so you kind of get the best of both worlds. But
0: Yeah, I think the the one big thing that Dayton that I took away from that press conference was Dayton Moore talking about what they want their team to look like in terms of culture in the clubhouse and culture in the front office. And he said he's going to be relentless about that. And it really does feel like Dayton Moore is taking on the role of like the architect of the organization and and like almost quite literally the president of the baseball operation without the hands-on in the everyday player development, player acquisition, and what the actual 40-man roster looks like. Now, again, we talk about him having the final say, but Jeremy, I want to get your thoughts on this because the Royals have been praised and celebrated from every corner of baseball about how they handle people. And I can't remember who it was. I think, Jeremy, it may have actually been you that tweeted this. It was in the middle of the pandemic or, or something related. Somebody tweeted and said, I take back what I said about Dayton Moore. Thank you for not treating this baseball team like a spreadsheet. Thank you for not treating baseball players like numbers. And thank you for treating the people like people. Um, and I do think that's such an underrated piece of what Dayton Moore brought to the Royals. So, hey, Jeremy, was that you that tweeted that or maybe even wrote an article about it?
1: Royals I, I and- don't. I didn't tweet that exactly, but I did write an article with with basically that mindset. Um, this was right after the the fiasco with the the Mariners' president, I believe, at the uh, at, where he just basically talked about how they were they were keeping the players down and and all the stuff that they were doing over there, um, and, and that's when I realized that I. Don't agree with Dayton Moore on a lot of things, um, but I respect his desire to treat his people well. I respect his desire to win um, and to not tank, and so to take that attitude and move it further away from player development and more towards organizational philosophy, like you've been saying, you and Max were saying. I absolutely 100% believe that's a good thing. I believe this is a good move um, for the Royals uh, to promote Dayton Moore. The The issue I have a little bit still with how this is all going down is J.J. Piccolo taking over as general manager. Um, as Max said, he has been at Dayton Moore's hip for a long time. I have a lot of questions about how differently he's going to approach things than Dayton Moore did. Um, and also I'm a little bit leery that he's interviewed for so many GM positions and not gotten an offer apparently, uh, or at least we haven't heard about an offer. He certainly hasn't taken a job. Uh, that makes me think that there might be something there. Then again, I look at, oh, Piccolo, sorry. Uh, anyway, that makes me, that makes me think there's, there, there might be an issue there with him being the, the GM uh that said Eric Biennemi uh if you go look at the other side of the street looks like he should 100% be a head coach by now and he's not and I don't question if there's something that uh owner football owners know about him that I don't know I question their intelligence so maybe Piccolo is uh he's making he's he's just not something that they're looking for, but he is a good choice. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to keep an open mind, but I do have some concerns
0: based on those couple of things. I will add this because, because I understand what you're saying and that if you're going to go, you know, I think the only way they would have hired a GM from outside the organization is if they got rid of Moore. also like there's, yeah. there's almost no to. way that you promote more to the position that he got and hire a GM from out of all, out of house. Um, and so I, I kind of, I see what you're saying in terms of being weary of what the actual change will be. I will say, like, if you're talking about a GM that knows every corner of what this should look like, JJ Piccolo has been a part of like big league roster construction. He's been a part of player development in 2018, when the hitters were struggling in Wilmington, he went to Wilmington and was working as like a part-time hitting coach with those guys trying to help figure out what can we do to get better? How can we improve this? What do we need to do? And I don't think it's – earlier I said 2019 offseason, um, and I think that's still – that's still okay, my bad. I, I've got my years mixed up. It was 2019 offseason. So in 2019 when those hitters were struggling in Wilmington, 2018 they were in Lexington. So in 2019 he goes to Wilmington, is helping as a part-time hitting coach. That offseason they hired Drew Saylor in – by all accounts, overhauled their player development approach to hitting. I think that's what we can find in Pocolo is, look, here's a clear issue. I've seen it myself. I was on the ground. I watched the issue happen, and we come in and we replace somebody with a guy from the Dodgers organization who came in, and by all accounts, between him and Alex Zumwalt have, if not fixed, markedly improved what we can expect from the hitting development approach. So, Jordan, I'll ask you this. If you – Even if we don't know necessarily what we should expect from Bacolo, if there's one or two things you would like to see the Royals do differently under his leadership as general manager, what would you like to see them do differently than they were doing under the Moore era?
3: Oh, man, that, of course, I got the toughest question after, after everybody (laughs) shared, you know, all their stuff. And I was going to say, like, there's really two, two extremes. With that, on one side, people said, oh, great, this is going to change everything. The worlds are going to go in a new direction. That's not going to happen. Also, the people that said literally it's going to be a carbon copy of Dayton Moore, I also don't think that's going to happen. Like, Is it? Is JJ maybe a little bit of a mini-me Dayton? In some ways, sure. When you're around a guy that long and you learn from a guy that long, you're going to adopt some of those philosophies. You'll take the stuff you like and uh, take out the stuff you don't. At the same time, we've mentioned He's a younger guy, younger minded, um, forward thinking in terms of like analytics and data, stuff like that. So really embracing that. And I'm like far from one of those people. But I think that the organization can benefit from that, even if they don't implement it all the time, just having those conversations um, open-endedly, kind of moving forward, keeping up with what baseball is doing right now, um, being able to do that. And like, I would say continue to care about people the way Dayton did. I think that's just a Royals thing. They've made it perfectly clear, like you said, Alex, they are going to, above anything else, be the organization that cares about their people, treats them like people. Um, I think it's going to pay off when they have that winning culture, finally, and start winning baseball games. It's going to pay off. Um, It may not look great now, and I think it was uh, Flanny that brought up the Matheny pushing and pushing and pushing, and some veterans didn't like that. I think it's all going to work out. Um. Even if people keep bringing up, you know, this team's gonna be good. They're gonna be World Series bound in a few years. Like it is so freaking hard to get to a World Series. Like the Royals are trying to build a somewhat prolonged contender. I think like longer than two years, get to the playoffs several times. Um, be a competitive fun team. I think JJ really just keeping going the good parts about what Dayton had. Um, but also, maybe adding a little bit of his own flair to it. I don't think it's going to change a ton, but I'd also think that it was the right move to make.
0: I just, uh, the one thing that I would love to see them do a little differently is Dayton said it this offseason, this past offseason, he's like, we need to be more transactional. And then mm-hmm. what they do all year is make no transactions. Like, I wonder if part of this isn't like where where Dayton stepping aside isn't a little bit of, hey, we're gonna bring in a guy who maybe is more equipped to be more transactional, right? So similar philosophies, maybe being a little more analytical, but there's a human element to the game of like we want to give our guys the best shot. We want to give these guys a fair shake. Part of the human element to the game, too, is being like being held accountable and responsible for being a bad major league baseball player. Um, you know, I hate to I always harp on Ryan O'Hearn, I always come back to it. It's not <laughs> always Ryan O'Hearn's fault. Like Ryan O'Hearn is examples one and two, but it's not just him. So I don't want this to sound like I'm just talking about Ryan O'Hearn, but Ryan O'Hearn, like if there's anything that JJ Piccolo can do better, that would win me over as a, you know, I'm already a fan of the move, but to be like 100% sold that it's going to work is Ryan O'Hearn needs to be DFA'd the second the season's over, because that shows me, you're not going to put up with mediocrity. And right now, what not just what they're telling the fan base what you're telling the players in the clubhouse is it's okay to be mediocre. It's okay to not hit well. It's okay to not defend well. And that's, that can't be the case. Like, I would rather them have a revolving door of good people at first base that at least are giving a new person a shot every now and then. Because what you're, I mean, you cannot go out and tell your organization in any way that mediocrity is acceptable. And it's not even just mediocrity, it's like it's bad. It is really, really bad production. It's one thing when you're getting paid millions of dollars like Carlos Santana because there's an obvious, hey, we as an organization made a mistake and we're going to have to write out this mistake, and everybody knows why. There's nothing to that with Ryan O'Hearn. There is no contract attached to him. There is no, like, you know, even if he's being – even if he's really bad, he also hits 25 home runs and you can kind of squint and see it. Like, if there's anything I, I would just – love to see is just a more transactional approach just we're not going to plug the same piece of the puzzle into the wrong corner over and over and over and over and over, and over again and just expect it to work one of these times it's like if this piece of the puzzle doesn't work we're going to move on we're going to get to something else and it brings up the 2022 lineup a little bit in that i think if dayton moore was the gm and we were going standard operating procedure into this off season i don't think this team looks that different in 2022 I really don't think we would see a ton of overhaul in terms of what this 26-man roster looks like in the big leagues. The other night, um, they ran out this lineup, and I, and I quote tweeted it and said something about it looking like a potential 2022 opening day lineup. Here's who they ran out their, um, their starting nine. Whit Merrifield, Nicky Lopez, Salvador Perez, Andrew Benintendi. All four of those guys, I think we can all agree, are locks to make the team start on opening day 2022, barring an injury or something crazy happening. The next five guys in this lineup are all question marks. They should be thought of as question marks. Whether or not they will be is is yet to be determined. Carlos Santana, Adalberto Mondesi, Michael A. Taylor, Hunter Dozier, Kyle Isbell. Jeremy, I want to start with you. I set the line at seven and a half over under seven and a half of these guys in the opening day, starting lineup in 2022.
1: Okay. So that's, that's tough. Um, I I'm kind of an outlier, I guess, in that I don't think Michael A. Taylor is coming back next year not as a starting outfielder. Anyway, I could see him coming back. Uh, if the Royals and he can agree that he's a fourth outfielder, I think he could, he could thrive in that role. And I think he would, he would be an excellent fourth outfielder for a team that had aspirations for contending, um, because of his defense and his ability to, to occasionally run into a home run. Um, just really that's, that's the kind of guy you like on your bench. Uh, so that's one guy I want to leave out of the lineup, that I don't expect to be there. I'm not sure I can count on any of the rest of them being removed. Um, so Carlos Santana is still under contract. He's a veteran. We know how the Royals have always felt about their veterans under contract. Heck, they're veterans not under contract. See Lucas Duda uh, twice. Um <laughs> And then you've got, okay, so Hunter Dozier's got his big deal. So I expect him to stick around and get another shot. Um, I think he's going to have to fail really hard to, to lose his, his starting position next year. And it's going to have to be next year, especially because he's been hot again recently. Um, and then Isbel, I hope Isbell's in the lineup. I would actually be kind of bummed if he's not. Um, it looks like he had a really good time in Omaha. He's, he's had some good-looking swings uh, since returning so I would definitely like to see him get another shot and uh, Mondesi he's he's got to be in the lineup if he's healthy um, at least you know uh, half the time I, I like what the Royals have been doing with him where they've been playing at third base which is a little bit less stressful uh, in terms of how how far he has to run to field balls Um, and then DHing him frequently and giving him frequent days off. I think that's the path forward for Adalberto Mondesi is to, I think we've all discussed this before is, is play him a hundred games and he'll put up great number. If he stays healthy for a hundred games, he'll put up numbers that are worth those hundred games easily. Um, so I'm going to say, I'm going to put the over, I guess on seven and a half, if you'd said eight and a half, I definitely would have put the under, And and should it be that way? It's it's really questionable. Um, I I want to say more, but I I also want to leave some room for some other people. I there are some other guys I would like to see, and and it may come down to what does what happens in spring training because we've seen some other guys in AAA that are really making a push that I think should should really have a chance at an opening day roster
0: spot. But I'll leave some room for some other people to talk about that. You mentioned Isbel. I want to really quick since being recalled from Omaha. Uh, Kyle Isbell has played in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine games. He's played in nine games. He started seven of them. Um, in six of those nine games, he was playing center field. And in those nine games, he has 26 plate appearances. He is batting 304 with a 385 on base, a 156 weighted runs created plus, an 11.5% walk rate and a 19.2% strikeout rate. That That will play every single day of the week. That is outstanding. That's not at all what I expect Kyle Isbell to be long-term, but if you get 90% of that, 80% of that, you're going to be rocking and rolling. Kyle Isbell should absolutely be your everyday right fielder, like you said, Jeremy, but whether or not he will be remains to be seen. Um, I could even see a case being made that he should be playing some center field, but that's another thing uh Max your turn over under seven and a half of those guys in the opening day lineup next year.
2: Yeah, I'll take the over on that. I don't expect uh JJ Piccolo to make like big changes, you know, stepping in the job and I think they've already got this thing kind of like on a path where like they know, you know, we we're going to we're going to see what we have internally and then maybe a year from now if they have a, you know, pretty pretty encouraging season next year they can kind of push their chips in if they want to make a kind of James Shields trade again. I think next offseason would be the time to do that. I don't think they're really at a point where they're going to do that this year. I I wrote uh, an article a couple weeks ago about the 2010 Royals, who were like the, the season before Eric Cosmer and Mike Moustakis and Salvador Perez came up. And, and everyone knew back then. It's like, OK, we know. Keila Kahui is a is a stopgap until Eric Cosmer comes up. We know Wilson Bedeman is is not here long term. He's a stopgap for Mike Mustakas. And in a way, he's like we kind of know Carlos Santana is just here until Nick Prado. They feel like he's ready. We know, uh, you know, it's just a matter of time before Bobby Wood Jr. is up. We'll see where MJ Melendez ends up. But I, I feel like, you know, we're not going to see a whole lot of trades this offseason. Could be still a pretty interesting offseason because I think they have some important decisions to make with, you know, does Bobby Wood Jr. Uh, opening day with the club, does Nick Prado break opening day with the club? But I think most likely, um, I can see Kyle Isbell being in the opening starting li- uh, starting lineup, just because you know he's got the major league experience and he is playing well, like you say. Um, Bobby Wood Jr. I think will probably make the opening day lineup, but I don't think that's a given at this point. Uh, where does that push Adalberto Mondesi? Maybe that pushes him to center field. Uh, so I don't I don't think there's going to be a lot of changes. I think a lot you'll see those faces maybe at different positions than they are in the lineup you posted. But I think I could see eight of those guys on opening day easily.
0: Jordan, what about you?
3: Yeah, I, I got to take the over. And especially considering the the minor league talent they have. Um, obviously, you could bring guys in on one-year deals, whatever. But considering at some point next year, Prado and Bobby Witt Jr., I, I would bet they'd be with the major league club. That'd be insane if they didn't ever make it up. Um, in 2022, like you look at Mondesi, you have to put him out there if he's healthy, and we're just going to assume health here, I guess. So, Mondesi's out there. Um, Hunter Dozier, I wouldn't say we have to put him in the lineup, but the Royals are going to A, because of the contract, B, because he has the September slugger numbers, whatever, where he's been playing better. They're going to have that false hope that maybe he really did have the, um, the timeline with the thumb injury did line up. He finally did. I think someone put together, it might have been one of us in here, like a comparison after June 28th or whatever, when he said he finally felt good. Um, the numbers, he's batting like 263. He's playing better. Um, so I, I don't know about Dozier, but I know the Royals are going to keep him there. So he's not going anywhere. Um, Michael A. Taylor, I don't expect him to come back, but I could see him. Coming back, and then Isbell, I think we're all in agreement that we want him out there. So they could make one change. Um, Santana, the same thing. His contract, he's going to be out there. So I'm going to go eight. I think they could either have a Bobby Witt Jr. break camp at the team, or they could pull something crazy for an outfielder. They could do something, but I think it's going to be one move, and the rest of the guys are going to be the same.
0: Here's my thing with it. And and I'm going to say this before I give you my prediction. If the number is over, this team has no shot at making the playoffs next year. Not that their chances are good anyway. Not that their chances are already good. If the number is over seven and a half, if it's eight or more, this team has a 0% chance of making the playoffs. It cannot, it will not happen. They cannot employ. Carlos Santana and Michael A. Taylor and one of these other guys and still make the playoffs. You have to get rid of at least two of those guys from the everyday lineup, if not a third one, to have any prayer. And it has to be like with significant overhaul. It can't just be, um, you know, scrap Carlos Santana for Ryan O'Hearn. Like that that can't be the move. (laughs) A playoff team has Carlos Santana on the bench. That's your bench bat. A playoff team has Michael A. Taylor as the fourth outfielder. That's a great fourth outfielder. But these guys have to be really valuable bench bats. They cannot be starters. I think, truly, if it was my call, my opening day lineup would consist of Isbell and center or right, wherever you want to fill in. Whoever the best free agent you think is available, if it's a center fielder or a right fielder, um, you move Isbell to the other one, Bobby Witt Jr. at third. He has lowered his strikeout rate at triple A from double A, and his strikeout rate over the last three weeks is even lower than his than when he started at triple A. So it's getting progressively better. His walk rate has skyrocketed over the last three weeks. Bobby Witt Jr. is ready as soon as they iron out the details of the CBA. I think the players are going to get less. Um, wiggle room for the teams to manipulate their service time. I think Bobby Wood Jr. is up on opening day. And honestly, um, I think my opening first base, opening day first baseman right now is Vinny Pasquantino down in double A. I think he's not as good of an offensive prospect long term, but I think he is more major league ready than Prado right now. Vinny Pasquantino. His strikeout rate, 12.5% with his power, is insane. It's absolutely insane. I think you could bring him up right now and he would hold his own better than Prado. Prado, his strikeout rate continues to climb. He's hitting 218 with a 32% strikeout rate at AAA over his last month. Like he's going to be fine. I'm not overly concerned about him. I just don't think you can subject him to big league pitching right now and expect him to have the same amount of success as some of these other guys. Um, and then I would go sign. Starling Marte or Nick Castellanos and make like a legitimately huge splash in free agency and go and put one of those guys in the outfield. I don't think you can sell to the fans. I don't think you can sell to the players in the dugout that this nine, this opening day roster of nine that they were running out the other day is what's going to get you to the promised land. I don't think anybody's buying it. And I have said for a long time, the Royals don't have to make the playoffs next year in order for the season to be considered a success, but they've got to be 500 or better. And right now we haven't seen a lineup that can out hit what the issues are with their pitching staff. Now I'm as big of a believer in Daniel Lynch and Jackson Coar and Carlos Hernandez and Brady Singer and Chris Bubich and Brad Keller as anybody, probably more than anybody. Honestly, I've, I've, I've got my Royals colored glasses on a little bit when I watch these guys pitch, do I think they can? lead a playoff rotation, I think it's possible. Like in their top 1% um, outcome, like I think it's in there. I think it's technically possible, but I don't know how you can go into 2022 and say this pitching staff and this lineup that we're rolling out here against Cleveland this week is going to be the same team that makes the playoffs next year or even goes 500. We've seen them not do that. Even when they've played brilliant baseball since the break, this is some of the best baseball we've seen them play with Adelbert in the lineup periodically is two games above 500. I think Max tweeted that out the other day, or maybe it was even today. They're 31 and 29. Any kind of regression. And now all of a sudden you're back to being well below 500. So unfortunately, I do think the answer will be over, but I really wouldn't be surprised if we see a minor overhaul in approach in terms of who's on the roster. And then one big free agent signing that gets us down to seven. Like it really wouldn't surprise me if we can get it under seven. But I will tell, I will, I will just say right now again if Michael A. Taylor and um, Carlos Santana are in the opening day lineup, this team has a 0% chance of going to where they need to go. You have to put one on the bench and you probably need to find a way to put both of them on the bench to have any shot at making the playoffs and have a good shot at going 500. In 2022. And if anybody has a rebuttal to that, I'll let you guys go now. Yeah, I mean,
2: do you do you think that's really their goal? I mean, if like if you gave date Moore and JJ Picola a truth serum and said, so, like, what's your goal for 2022? Do you think they would say, like, yeah, we need to make the play, like, we are gonna make the playoffs this year? Like, I think they're they're looking at the long term, and I agree with you, like Michael Taylor, Carlos Santana lineup, and, and you know, like even with Bobby Wood Jr. He's probably going to have some struggles his first year. And, and even if he's Mike Trout, his first year, he can't, you know, Mike Trout can't carry the angels to the playoffs. I don't know if Bobby Wood Jr. can, can carry a bad team to the playoffs. So, but you know, like, so they're probably going to have some, some, some weaknesses in the lineup. And, and I think that's been pretty evident, but I, I think they're trying to build towards a, a contender down the road. And, and they, and they, if they see progress next year, maybe 500, um, you know, I think that's a good goal to set. Then I think that they're going to see, that, okay, we're on our way. Cause like we, We've got all these pitching, pitching prospects. Probably only like one or two of them is really going to end up being anything, like maybe Carlos Hernandez, maybe Daniel Lynch, and then someone else has an injury and someone else doesn't pay out, whatever. Um, but, but this is the year we kind of sort that out, figure that out, um, frankly, kind of you know try to get past some of these contracts with Mike Miner and Carlos Santana. This is the kind of year you do that. I don't know that making the playoffs is like their number one goal next year. They'll probably say it is. Um, but, uh, but I don't, I don't know that I would say you need to get rid of guys just because this is not a playoff team. Cause I don't know, you know, I think long-term is probably what they're, what they're more of a concern right now.
0: Yeah. The, I, sorry. So the implication there is if you have no shot at making the playoffs 0%, that means your chances of being 500 or around there are also lower. So like they, they kind of move in tandem. So if, if your chances of making the playoffs exist, if they're above zero, that means inherently that your chances of being competitive in the playoff hunt are better. Right. So I don't think this team, like, like I said, they don't have to make the playoffs for me personally, in terms of how I'm judging their, this, the, the, this operation and the rebuild until 2023, if they go 81 and 81 next year, I will be thrilled with the development and the progress they're making. But if you have 0% chance of making the playoffs, you're a 75 win team. You're a 72 win team. You're a, what Vegas had them at 71 and a half this year. They're going to win 73, 74 games this year. They're going to beat their Vegas odds probably, but to have a 0% chance of making the playoffs next year tells me that they're, again, this is my opinion, if that, that that's where they would be, tells me they're just another 72, 73 win team. So you're right. I think Bobby Wood Jr. comes up. He's going to have some inherent early on, some struggles early on. The reason you have to get rid of Michael A. Taylor, the reason you have to get rid of Carlos Santana, so that, and by get rid of, I mean, they have to be on the bench. They have to be reserve roles is you need to fill them with talented veterans or your best prospects so that when Bobby Witt Jr. struggles, Starling Marte is still hitting 280 with a 340 on base and hitting 25 home runs in your lineup. Or Nick Castellanos is hitting 290 with a 350 on base and hitting 30 home runs in your lineup, whatever that looks like. But their replacements have to be the ones carrying the load. You can't have, Bobby Witt Jr. struggling, Carlos Santana not hitting, Michael A. Taylor not hitting, and then all these young guys are on on a really bad team because we are now in year, what was it, 2018, 19, 2021? We're in year four of a rebuild. Year five of a rebuild can't be another 72, 73 win team, in my opinion, because if year five of the rebuild is a 72, 73 win team, you're not doing good enough. This This is not moving fast enough. It's not good enough. And somebody needs to be put in place to make sure that it goes better. And it's not like if they lose less than – or if they, if they win less than 81 games, I'm going to be calling for heads. And if they go 79 and 83 and they've been a really competitive team all year, awesome. If they even win 78 games, but they've it's clear that they probably could have won 81 with a few breaks, that's fine. But you can't win 72 again, and I, and I just think that it's, it's inevitable – that you cannot win eighty-one games with Carlos Santana and Michael A. Taylor in this lineup.
2: No, I think that's fair, and I, I think when you look at past rebuilds with other clubs, like by year five, like they were, they had things kind of running. I guess I'll, I'll put this out to everyone else that, like, if this team, like, say they don't make a single move right now, and it's the same team, but you know Bobby Wood Jr. and Nick Prado and MJ Melendez and the the young pitchers, if you had a guess right now at their win total. Going into next year without any other moves, and we don't know what Adamar Montese's health is going to be like. Uh, what would you put as their win total for next year? Um,
3: first and foremost, Alex, um, Vinny Pasquantino fan club. Really glad you brought that up. I I love the guy. Like I agree with everything you said about the long term ceiling, but the short term like possible MLB readiness. But back to Max's question, man. On on one end, like you would expect some. Progression from some of those young arms, but also what if they completely flame out and somehow get worse? What if Nikki Lopez regresses a little bit, which is definitely possible? Like, I still expect Nikki to be a productive everyday player. Um, but him doing what he's doing right now, the odds of that happening again aren't extremely great. Um, what if Merrifield slips a little bit? What if Perez slips a little bit? Stuff that, like, isn't necessarily going to happen, but is possible. Like, what is going to outweigh what? Um, then, what if Hunter Dozier produces a little bit better? What if Mondesi can stay healthy? What if, what if, what if? Um, right around the same, like the optimistic point of view would be like with Bobby Witt Jr., with Nick Prado, with potentially Melendez or whoever, you add like what five wins to the team? Maybe like you win 77, 78 games. And I guess that's not terrible. Um, I, I'm kind of put in the bar without looking at any of the moves they're going to make without knowing what moves they're going to make. 500 would be cool. Like, that'd be nice. I think that everyone can agree that they don't have to make the playoffs. Like Alex said, um, if they kept everyone and just ran it back, which would be like one of the worst run it back tours ever. Um, <laughs> I, I'd say like probably 75, 76 wins and maybe even one or two more, depending on the prospects.
1: I, I mostly agree. Um, I think I'm I'm thinking about 500 if they just promote from inside and don't add any more, I think the pitchers are going to be better next year. I think you have a full year of Carlos Hernandez. I think Brad Keller is going to be better uh, assuming he can be healthy. Um, and I think Brady Singer is going to be better. I think Daniel Lynch is going to be better. Um, and I, I think there's a I, I at least think there's a path for Brady Singer to be better and a path for Chris Bubich actually to be better. There's there's identifiable things with both of those guys where you can look at them and say, if you do this, you will be better. I've seen you do this. Do it again. Um, do it more consistently. So uh, that that's kind of where I'm I'm leaning is if the, and I think Bobby Witt Jr. could have a really good first year And just even adding one more hitter to this lineup, um, even if you see a decline in some guys like Whit Merrifield um, and and I I mean, Carlos Santana, I don't think gets much lower than he (laughs) already is right now. Um, So just replacing like a Ryan O'Hearn in your lineup with a Bobby Witt Jr. I think is, is a huge net positive. Uh, So I, I think they could be at 500. I, don't want them to just settle for for promoting from within and being 500 i want them to go out and and make that free agent splash like you were talking about alex bring me in one i mean preferably two i think two really big signings would be would, that would do it they'd be a playoff contender instantly based on the roster that they have but if you bring me one i can believe i i'll put on my royal blue colored glasses and, and we'll go to town but um, that, that's thats what I want to see. But I, I do think about 500 is probably the best we could expect uh, realistically from this roster if they only promote from within and, and, you know, if things go well. If things go poorly, injuries, people regress or don't improve, then obviously we could be right back where we started, which would
0: not be great. The last thing I want to get to really quick is an article Max wrote today over at Royals Review, and then we'll take an ad break. The um, payrolls of the past few seasons, um, <clears throat> we'll start in 2013, which is about what I think we should expect from this club in 2022 in terms of performance, finishing right around 500 uh, Payroll was $82 million, and that team was the first year of the James Shields era. So 2014, it jumps 11 million, or $10 million to $92 million. In 2015, it jumped $20 million to $112, $113 million. It jumped another $20-ish million dollars to $131 million in 2016, another 10-ish, 143 and 17, and then $122, 97. And then this season it was $89 million. Max has us written out to about $80 million in payroll. Um, right now for the opening day roster in 2022. If I'm John Sherman and I'm trying to get steam rolling for a downtown ballpark and I'm trying to get fans excited and I'm trying to fill a stadium because I just paid a billion dollars for a baseball team and I'm trying to recruit some of that revenue and I just signed a new TV deal and I want to continue building and investing in my organization, This. Could very easily, in my opinion, be a ninety-five million-dollar payroll somewhere between ninety and hundred million dollars on opening day, which means that we're going to have roughly fifteen-ish, ten to fifteen million dollars to add to this payroll. Um, and if you remove, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what difference it makes in terms of who they get rid of, but if you can add fifteen million dollars in payroll you could go get a really solid middle to bottom half of the lineup bat to plug in the outfield that's going to go get you two-and-a-half, three wins um, in a good year that makes this lineup better. And you can probably add a one-and-a-half to two-and-a-half win arm to find somewhere to, to slot into your rotation. Um, think what they probably expected from Mike Miner, right? So what, whatever you expected from the Mike Miner signing, you can probably go get that this offseason in payroll and substantially just help the depth of your team so that in the dog days of July, when guys are starting to drop a little bit, you can not expect the droughts they've had where they start off 16 and nine and all of a sudden they lose 12 of 15, right? So, um, I do think there's some flexibility in the payroll. I do think there's a really good opportunity for John Sherman to prove to Royals fans and the team that they're serious about wanting to contend, even if they don't go out and win 90 games. There's an opportunity that exists to start adding to your payroll to prove to the fans that you're serious. If you can bump this thing up to $95, 100000000 million in 2022, and then you get the fans out, we're excited, you finish 500, we're rolling into 2023, you bump it up to $115 million after that, the more fans are coming back. Now everybody's excited. It's Bobby Wood Jr.'s second season, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I just think there's a really good opportunity here for John Sherman to prove it to Kansas City. And I wouldn't be shocked if we see that a little bit. So um, go to Royals Review. You can check out the payroll, what it should look like, what it could look like, Some past payrolls. Um, it's the headlining article at Royals Review as of uh, Wednesday night. Should still be pretty, pretty close to the top of the screen on Thursday when you guys are listening to this. Um, We're going to take an ad break really quick. When we come back, we'll get to some of your questions um, from the Twitter.com, and we'll be right back. All right, so Andrew Paredes is a guy that uh, he tweets us quite a bit over at Royals Farm Report. I keep hearing Starling Marte is the main free agent center fielder name floating around. What about Chris Taylor? He'll be a free agent this offseason and is a few years younger. He's currently making $7.8 million. I haven't gone through all his stats, but I feel like – But I I like his 2.9 war and 20 home runs. I'm not a big Chris Taylor guy. I've never been a big Chris Taylor guy. Regardless of the Chris Taylor piece of it, I think the part that a lot of Royals fans miss, and I keep seeing Cattell Marte's name thrown around in trade. Cattell Marte, like, I don't think Cedric Mullins is is really good defensively in center field. We can argue about that all day long. I think Cedric Mullins would be good enough that the Royals would try him out there in a trade theoretically Cattell Marte is awful. He is terrible in center field. He only plays center field for the diamondbacks. So other teams can say we're trading for a center fielder and pay more money for a guy who should probably be a DH or a left fielder, right? He's not good. The issue that a lot of Royals fans are going to run into is we're looking for some bat to go play center field, but the Royals are always going to prioritize defense out there because Kaufman stadium is huge. Comerica park in Detroit is huge. Target field in Minnesota is not small. Um, even Cleveland has a ton of room out there uh, in center field. Your only real divisional opponent with a, with a small outfield is in Chicago. I just don't see the Royals because you're going to play 81 games at home. You're going to play 36 games or no, 27 more games on the road in some of those bigger parks uh, in the AL Central. That's almost 100 of your games that are being played in a really big baseball park. The Royals are going to have a defense-first-minded outfielder. Now, that doesn't mean they can't also have a great bat. We saw Lorenzo Cain finish third in MVP voting 2015. But if they go make a big splash, really the best option I see right now, the most reasonable best option I see, is Starling Marte because of the defense. Chris Taylor's great. I don't think he has even close to the athleticism necessary to play center field at Kauffman stadium. I think you'd be way better off with Kyle Isbell out there, younger, fresher legs. He's been healthy. Well, he has not been healthy more often, but he's been healthy this year. I think we can reasonably expect him to stay healthy. Like his injury was a ham eight bone and then he, he broke his wrist. So I, like that is not leg related, but, um, but anyway, I, I'm not, I'm not a big Chris Taylor guy. But more to the point, I think it would be really difficult for the Royals to go get a big bat that's just kind of a meth defender in center field because their park combined with some of the other parks in the AL Central just don't allow it. Jeremy, we'll go to you really quick. I know we've spent a lot of time talking about it. Um, A, Chris Taylor, yes or no. B, any other thoughts on center field and other options that, that have come up since the last time we talked about this a week and a half ago? Uh.
1: I'm I'm still all 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 aboard the the Starling Marte train Um, you know I don't want him it kind of depends on the contract because if they're going to give him like a six-year deal or something stupid like that then eh, let's maybe think about that a minute but like a a three-year deal I think I could live with that Um, yeah Chris Chris Taylor is like you said, the, the defense is not really there. And it's, it would be hard to justify putting him in Kaufman center field. And I will be, I think one of the, one of the first people who's going to say defense doesn't matter as much as the Royals seem to think it matters, or at least it doesn't, I don't believe it matters as much as the Royals seem to think it matters. I look at all these other teams that are winning games and I I look at them boot the ball all over the field and win anyway, because they hit six home runs. so, but when it comes to Kaufman Stadium, um, and when you got a whole bunch of young pitchers that the confidence that they can get from knowing that if, if that ball is catchable, somebody's going to catch it, uh, I think there's a benefit to that. So, I absolutely like the idea of having uh, somebody with good defense, even if they're not quite as strong with the bat as some of the other options. Um, I do want a good bat out there, I want somebody that you can bat in the five hole and not go, why is Michael a Taylor in the five hole? (laughs) You know? Um, so that's, and the only guy that really seems to fit that bill uh, is Starling Marte. So I'm, I'm all in on that right now. If, uh, if the Royals don't sign Starling Marte, I'm going to have a hard time, uh, getting excited for the possibilities, at least as far as win loss records
0: go for the Royals next year. Jordan, I haven't got to talk to you about this. What do you think? I mean, A, so we can get to the Chris Taylor thing, but B, do you have any, like, have you thought, have you written anything? Have you had, do you have any thoughts about what the Royals need to be doing in center field next year?
3: Yeah, literally everything Chris Taylor slash Starling Marte related. Like if you would have asked me before Jeremy, you would have got the same soundbite, like same opinion on Taylor, same opinion. I, I'd love Starling Marte, um, patrolling center at Kauffman field or Kauffman stadium. Sorry, not six years. Like, again, that, that'd that be pretty crazy, um, but it would be cool. Now, if Michael A. Taylor could hit the ball better, more consistently, he'd be fine to come back for another year, but he just can't. And it's not that his bat is completely unplayable, but like we said earlier, when you have other holes in the lineup, potentially you can't take that risk. Like if you had eight productive, consistent, good hitters, you could deal with Michael A. Taylor's elite defense, and inconsistent bat, a little bit of pop, stuff like that. You, you just can't have that be your everyday center fielder if you realistically um, want to compete. So then you kind of go down the path of, like, do we trade off some defense for offense? I think the answer is an easy yes. Like, there's only so many elite defensive center fielders. Granted, there's only so many quality hitters in center field also. Um, people keep bringing up, like, I've seen a lot of people bring up guys that are, like, trade targets, not even free agents. Um, I, the Cedric Mullins series, when the Royals were playing at Camden, they were um, saying, you know, I, I'm iffy on his bat playing at Kaufman Stadium, like his power, and I haven't, like, dove into the numbers, but I just don't feel like it'd be quite as extreme. Um, Obviously, that applies to a lot of players, um, but I don't think he'd be quite the same at the K you know people bring up a somehow getting a Lorenzo Kane reunion going, like, there's so many ideas out there, and ultimately, I'm kind of in the if you're not going to make a splash move and get a guy like Starling Marte, um, not going to be your center fielder, obviously, splash move in the outfield. Um, Kyle Isbell, we mentioned earlier briefly, like, giving him some run in center field, I wouldn't be opposed to that. I don't think that he'd be a train wreck in center field, I think that his bat will play much better than Michael A. Taylor's? Is it going to be great? No, I don't think so. Is it going to be decent? I do. Um, So a long-winded answer to say, I really don't have a backup plan besides Starling Marte. If that doesn't happen, which it probably isn't going to, I'm kind of in the same boat as everybody else.
0: Max, do you have any new thoughts on center field or do you want to start the next question off?
2: Well, I just think that like like Starling Marte is going to be 33 here next month. I I think that... (laughs) The track record for thirty-three-year-old players, free agents, isn't great. And look, the free agents we've brought into Kansas City have not been particularly good. I I would be pretty wary of them. Um, I think there's a reason why teams are getting away from thirty-year-old free agents uh, as a general rule. And I think if you if you have the mindset of like we need to trade defense for offense, then I think one solution is move out of out there. Uh, you know, certainly he's not a guy you can count on for 150 games. But um, with him out there and maybe Kyle Isbell as a hedge. It's kind of like his caddy when he's hurt. Um, that's not maybe the worst idea uh, if you want a, a solution in center field, because after Marte, there's not really many other solutions. I mean, I think Jordan mentioned, you know, like, you know, Cedric Mullins perhaps is available. He's, he's not a very good defender either. Um, and, and I would certainly want to be more creative with the trade, I think, than, than, than going for Marte. And maybe that's something where they see their excess of, of pitching. They know some of those guys are going to, you know, there's a high fail rate with pitchers. Maybe they end up trading at one of the, their pitching prospects for a center fielder. But um but I you know I'd I'd rather kind of investigate what they have with this and Mondesi than, than go out and spend you know four years sixty million dollars on Starling Marte or in excess of that. So um I understand the 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 attraction of Marte because he's having a fantastic season. Uh I'd i just be a little uh, wary of of plunging multi-year multi-million dollars into a player like that.
3: Well and 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 quickly just to jump back in real quick before we move on. The Royals would like essentially if they did make a move um, and Marta think would pan out, but if they made a move that was for someone else other than him, that isn't a splash necessarily um, could turn out good, could not turn out good. It's going to be another Edward Olivares situation with Isbell where they're saying, well, he's blocked, you know, he hasn't played enough to see if he can hit blah, blah, blah. Kyle Isbell, I believe in much more than Edward Olivares. I think that Isbell higher floor um, like <sighs> Oliveris was like a fun, brief passing thing. I think the Royals have their actions speak to what they think about him. Um, it's unfortunate, but if next year, which I think this year a lot of people expected the Royals to have it be the let's figure out what we have year, and things just didn't really align for that, next year really could be that. And if the Royals do find out that Kyle Isbell's an everyday player, then you have one of your outfield spots short up or they find out he's not. You can always make that big move once you have internal improvement, I guess, and really want to compete the year after. But then it comes back to, you know, what are they going to say? Are they going to say we want to compete? Are they going to say we want to make the playoffs? We expect to do this. We want to do that. So it just comes down to where they think they're at, I think. And if it's one more year of, Experimenting, then maybe they don't make a big move. But if it's a we want to lock something up for a few years, then go out and sign someone.
0: I like all those thoughts. Um, really quick, I, I we I had mentioned the downtown stadium. Somebody asked what the what we think the new name of the downtown stadium will be, and I said Geehaw Field at Geehaw <laughs> Stadium and the Geehaw <laughs> Bar District. And, Gee-Haw. And, and I know it's G E H A, whatever, but I I can't not think D when I see it on the side of Arrowhead stadium. So my real point to that, and I was, I was joking, but here, so here's the thing. Here's my tinfoil hat conspiracy. The the chiefs never sold out their stadium like that until they paid Patrick Mahomes half a billion dollars. Billionaires like money. Billionaires don't like to give away their money for free. Um, not, not for free, but billionaires don't like to give away their money. If you're going to pay Patrick Mahomes half a billion dollars, you'd like to create a little more revenue coming into your team, especially when you missed the pandemic year and all these other things. I think the Royals obviously are going to want to try to find a way to keep Bobby Witt junior in Kansas city as long as possible. Right. I mean, duh, the only way that's possible. The only way is if they get a massive title sponsor for their first few years at the downtown stadium. So Bobby Witt Jr's contract his rookie contract will be up before they go down there right if you can plan on having a downtown stadium in your first season is 2031 and you're John Sherman you say okay it's going to cost me a ton of money to keep Bobby Witt Jr here but I'd really like to keep Bobby Witt Jr in Kansas City here's what it's going to cost me I'm going to front it now in 2031 when we open the new stadium we're going to let Giha or Evergy or H&R Block, one of these big companies, we're going to allow them to come in and have the title sponsor of the field. And it's going to be, um, you know, a Comerica Park. We're going to have a a building name, a stadium named after a company, because they're going to try to get as much money funneled into the organization as possible if they're going to have a shot at signing Bobby Wood Jr. Now, maybe they do that anyway, just for the revenue, because everybody's doing it, right? I mean, almost – Like all these new stadiums are named after a title sponsor. So like, I would totally get it if they, if that's the route they chose to go, but I could see them mirroring the chiefs where you get, you have a generational type of player coming up. The only way to pay them is to create more money. And the best way to create more money is to let somebody pay you to have their name on the side of the stadium.
2: Yeah. Well, I I think there is money uh, is a big part of it, but they, they did have a deal uh, in 2012 to have U.S. Bank uh, have the naming rights to the stadium. It was going to be Kauffman Stadium or U.S. Bank at Kauffman Stadium or something, you know, U.S. Field at Kauffman Stadium. That deal fell through. Um, I, but I think this lar- is, the larger thing is they want that stadium full. They feel like a downtown stadium um, will have a greater attendance because you have a lot of downtown workers, you have a lot more downtown residents. Uh, and also, you look around with other teams. The Oakland Athletics uh, proposed a $1 billion stadium in Oakland that was going to be privately financed, but with nine hundred million dollars of public money to support a twelve billion dollar real estate development around the stadium, and that's where the money is now. Teams are developing the areas around their stadiums. I think the Cubs are doing a little bit of this too. Uh, a couple of the teams have proposed doing it. They want to develop the area around it to generate even more, even more revenues because uh, because I think if if there is more going to be more revenue sharing, that money is not going to be part of the revenue sharing. That money is going to be part of the. Owners, you know, oh, that's just part of what I do, part of my business. That's not anything to do with the team, even though it obviously comes from the team as well. Uh, so that's kind of the future. And look, John Sherman's a big downtown booster guy. I think he's always been a big civic booster. I think he feels like moving the team downtown would create more economic activity for downtown. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, you know, the Kansas City Star had a poll this week that had like 35% of people for it. Um, I think there's a pretty big generational split. I think a lot of younger people are like, eh, that makes sense because they're more familiar with downtown. I think a lot of older people are like, you know, they remember when downtown was a, a cesspool and not worth going to. And, and I think maybe they're a little less familiar. No, that's not for everyone. I mean, like, certainly there are a lot of older people that are that are, are very, very, uh, that live downtown. But, um, you know, I think it's going to be a hard sell in Kansas City, especially when Kauffman is so beloved.
0: Anybody else thoughts on new stadium name?
3: I don't know about the name. I know I'm 22. Like I, I'm i in that generation where I literally, I like going downtown. I know my way around downtown. I think it'd be fun. I don't know if it's practical. Like people bring up parking, people bring up the economic benefit, people bring up leaving Kaufman. like all of that. There are definitely multiple things to consider there. Now, granted, the people whose only argument against it is, well, there's sentimental value with Kaufman Stadium. The same people who made a really, 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 really big deal about like the the Gee-Ha sign at Arrowhead. Like, I get that people like to keep those like family traditions or whatever going. If that's the only reason holding you back from being for a downtown stadium, broaden your horizons a little bit. I, there's more to it. There's more opportunity. There's more um, growth potentially down the road. Now I don't know if it's going to happen. I should probably do more research about it before, like, being full send on. Yeah, let's do a downtown stadium. Um, but as a a kid, quote unquote, who likes being downtown, um, I think it'd be fun. Now, practical again, that's another story.
0: We got a couple. I,
1: oh, go ahead, Jeremy. I was just gonna throw my two cents in there. Is that I I don't live in Kansas City anymore. I haven't for. Uh, I don't even know how many years, a lot of years. I can't count that high. Um, i I grew up there, so that's why I love the Royals. but i I have been very opposed to publicly funding stadiums, publicly yeah. funding stadium development for a very long time this is this is not something I think should happen anywhere. And if John Sherman wants to move the stadium downtown and John Sherman wants to pay for it, I'm cool with that. If John Sherman wants to get money from the public, then I'm not cool with it. That's, that's basically my, my criteria is that I don't, I don't think it should be taxpayer funded at all. Not the stadium, not the development around it, not any of it, but uh, that that's, that's all I care about.
0: Honestly. I, I like that you brought that up because I respectfully disagree. 100%. Now in an ideal world, if the billionaires would just pay for it, that'd be fantastic. Like I, I agree with you in principle. I also think the issue with with that line of thinking is, it, let's say you you were for still living in Kansas City, Jeremy, and like Max mentioned the KC Star poll and said something like thirty percent of thirty five percent of KC Mo citizens wouldn't support a publicly funded stadium. Carrington Harrison tweeted this the other day. He goes, "Then the new stadium will be in Kansas." Like I understand the line of thinking. But this is also sort of an investment by taxpayers to continue to generate massive amounts of revenue for your city, for your county, for your state. So it's not like we're not getting anything out of this, because when Mike Trout and his $450 million contract come to Kansas City to play for three days, he pays his income tax in Kansas City, Missouri. When Shohei Otani and all these guys who make all this money, they come to Kansas City. Their income tax is paid when they're here. So obviously the stadium creates its own revenue, but the players being here creates revenue. There are clear benefits to, I think, publicly funded or to to having a baseball stadium. And again, the principle of the thing, I totally agree with you. But in, in a more realistic sense, if Kansas City, Missouri doesn't want to pay for the stadium, Kansas City, Kansas will. They'll put it out in the legends and Kansas can create all that tax revenue that Missouri won't get. So it's a really tough conversation. Like how principled do you want to be when you go to vote? Do you want to say we're not paying for it and the billionaires should? I agree with you. you. Are you ready to lose all the tax revenue generated by the stadium and by the professional baseball team being in your state?
1: So technically I lived in Kansas, so that would actually work out better for me if I was still there. But in my perfect world, no city pays for it. Right. And I get what you're saying that you're worried that, Oh, if my city doesn't pay for it, then they go somewhere else. We see this with Oakland right now, the athletics are trying to, to fight the city into paying for things. And if they won't, then they're going to move, or at least that's what they say. Um, so, and, and I believe it because like you said, somebody will, somebody will pay for it. I, I've, haven't done enough research on it. I have read some stuff that suggests that the stadiums don't actually bring in all that much money into the local economies. So I'm, I'm a bit iffy on that argument. I need to do more research on that. Um, I just know I've seen the headlines and I've heard the, the talking points. But... Um, yeah, that's that's just where I stand is that it it bugs the crap out of me that these these especially as Max said these teams are doing all this real estate development now. Like now we're not even just building a stadium, we're building a whole real estate empire and that that really strikes me as not great for anybody but the the people who are profiting off of it.
0: Yeah, I did see a um it was a proposal by Somebody and the biggest criticism I saw was you're putting in all these big apartments, these fancy apartments from the stadium. And they're not even going to be affordable. Like this, this isn't going to be for the average taxpayer. Like this is this is for the 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 very top one percent. So I also need to do more research. I would love to know what the numbers breakdown is. Like, let's say Kansas City, Missouri taxpayers vote to put in what, what's it going to cost? Nine hundred fifty million dollars in a bond or to, in money to put a new stadium in. How long does it take a city to recover $950 million from that stadium? I'd be fascinated to learn about that. Um, in the interest of time, I want to get to some more questions. That is something, Jeremy, let's, let's bring that up. Um, we're going to have a, uh, more of a national guest on next week. Um, let's plan on asking him, see if he has, has any thoughts on that. Um, there's a couple of questions on here about prospects and the infield kind of tied together. So let's go there. Uh, Max, let's start with you this time. I expect Bobby Witt Jr. to be on the opening day roster. I expect that at some point in time, Nick Prado will be up. I expect that very soon Vinny Pasquantino will be up. I really don't think people understand how good his bat is. Like, he's not the best defender. He's not very fast. That dude hits. He actually reminds me a lot of, like, Billy Butler. Like, think about the value Billy Butler brought. Not a ton of home runs, but enough. I mean, he had enough to be in the um, – that people legitimately thought he should be in the home run derby one year made a couple all-star games because he hit so well, a ton of doubles, really good on-base percentage, no defense or speed on the base path whatsoever. That's kind of what Vinny Pasquantino reminds me of, if he can hit as a prospect. Um, So there's some guys that are going to come up, and then it brings up the question of MJ Melendez. So, Max, um, infield prospects, how do they fit? And, A, maybe what would you do? B, what do you think is the ideal scenario for the best Royals team in 2022?
2: I think what we'll see on opening day is Bobby Witt Jr. at third base. Uh, they've talked about him as I quote left side of the infield guy. You know, there was a note in Fangrass today who, who bumped him. Uh, they, Eric Longerhagen, uh, bumped Bobby Witt up from the number three prospect in baseball to the number two prospect in baseball over CJ Abrams because Abrams has been hurt, but also because Witt has played so well this year. But he did note that there have been some knocks on Bobby Witt for his defense at short. Um, some I saw some notes, and I can't remember if it was you or someone else, but uh, there were some notes that like maybe that's because he's just so confident on defense he tends to kind of try to do too much, um, and and that some of that will just kind of you know maturity will kind of even out some of his defensive flaws now so we'll see but but I think right now Nicky Lopez has kind of earned that shortstop position so I you know I think Bobby Witt could probably get his feet wet at the major league level at third with Lopez at short Witt Merrifield at second. And I think you're right Prado probably doesn't start the season at first base i think you will see carlos santana there because they won't be able to move him and they won't see him as a, as a bench player uh but i think you'll see prado there by mid-season hopefully they can santana gets hot and they can trade him but if they have to DFA him or move him to a, a bench role then that's what they have to do but that's kind of how they, i see them um start out this year. And I, that and i would have said that a couple of months ago i thought maybe whit merrifield would move back to the outfield but he's been so good defensively at second base that I don't think that's going to be an option at this point. So,
0: Jordan? Uh,
3: do you want me to give my world first or Royals' world first? Give
0: your world first. What's your favorite
2: uh, scenario this looks like?
3: My favorite scenario would be Witt Jr. at third, Lopez at short, Merrifield at second, Pasquintino at first. I just, I, I want to see a little bit, more consistency from Prado, like cut the strikeouts down, be a little more patient at the plate, bounce back a little bit just to start the year. Um, I think it would be easier for Pasquantino to play and then fizzle out and just say, okay, it was a failed experiment, then Prado come up, not be ready, and then have it derail or whatever. Um, so I'd do that. And then I guess Melendez is somewhere in that picture. Like, I think in both my world and Royal's world, there's just not a spot for him right now. And like With Mondesi, Mondesi's not in third base in any of these scenarios. So does he go to that bench role? Then Melendez and him are working their way around the infield. Santana's on the bench. He works his way around. Like, when does he factor in at DH at first base? The Royals have so many cooks in the kitchen, potentially. um, And it's a good problem to have. Like, not all of those guys are good players. But when you have enticing prospects, when you have Mondesi, who's very enticing, when you have Carlos Santana, who if he wasn't making the $10.25 million next year, whatever his contract is, be easier to put him on the bench, um, I suppose. And that comes back to if we're running the team and we're like a cutthroat, we want to win games. It doesn't matter to us, but the Royals are going to give him every chance, I guess, to keep playing. Um, so I think Prado starts off at the minor league level still in AAA. I think in Royals world, Bobby Witt Jr., there's a chance he doesn't make the opening day roster and it's not like a horrible chance. I think that it's a little bit more likely than people think, Um, especially with Mondesi. And do you keep him at third? Do you put him in center field? So I want to see how the off season unfolds. Like if you ask me again in February, my answer would probably be a little bit different, Um, but they have options and that's both a good and a bad thing. I think at this point,
0: Jeremy, any thoughts?
1: I'm if I had my way right this second, and like like Jordan said, uh, you know, my answer could definitely change based on what what things happen in the offseason. Uh, but right this second, I'm gonna put Bobby Wood Jr. at third. I'm gonna put Nikki at short. I'm gonna, and then I'm gonna have Mondesi, Merrifield, Dozier kind of rotate around second, first, and the outfield. Um, and I'm I'm gonna move on from Santana if if I have my way. I feel like the Royals and I feel like they should, I feel like they could find somebody who's not really competing, but just need somebody to, to sit at first base next year and trade him for a bag of balls. I mean, you're not going to get anything for him, but get him, get him off the roster. Um, maybe get somebody else to eat a little bit of that money and, and just free up some room for some other guys. Cause I just, he's, he doesn't really have a place on this roster anymore.
0: I don't disagree with that. I think the if the Royals had it their way, the perfect scenario for the Royals looks like depend again. This all depends on the CBA. Because like the way it worked has worked this year is you can hold a guy down for like 12 days and game an entire year of service time. So it was really easy to hold guys down for 12 days, right? So let's say that it's the same because I think what they'll do is they'll take like two months. So like if if a guy is up before like June 1st he gets his year of service time. So let's just say it's 12 days, though. I think in a perfect world for for, for the Royals themselves, Bobby Witt Jr. struggles in camp, and you can go, and and Mondesi's healthy, and you can go Mondesi, Lopez, Witt, Santana, and then game the year of service time on everybody and say, well, he wasn't very good in the spring. Like, I I think that's the excuse they're probably going to look for. But I think – if Bobby Wood junior is doing anything of like substantial production wise offensively, he's going to be up. Like I, they can't justify it. And you can't ride around your high horse and claim you don't game service time, <coughs> excuse me. And then game service time for the best prospect in baseball. So um, that's kind of what I think might could and will or will not happen. Um, last question I want to get to really quick uh, before we go. And I just, ah, Kevin A. G., another longtime follower of ours. Is it time again for the Royals to seek that James Shields type of move? Uh, Max, you said earlier that it could potentially be next year. I do believe that. I do believe that this is the year, that this is the year they needed to make. Because we keep talking about like the offensive prospects coming up. When <clears throat> Hosmer and Duffy and those guys debuted, they all debuted at once. There wasn't two waves we've already seen a massive wave of pitching prospects come to the big leagues. Like, in a way, we've already had that 2011 wave right now in all of pitchers. I mean, there's five of them from the same draft class that have already debuted. And now there is a offensive wave behind them. Whereas in 2011, all those pitchers that were supposed to be awesome, Duffy's the only one who ever made it, whoever really even got close to pitching meaningful innings for the Royals. So it was all those offensive guys. Now you have a wave of pitching prospects and a wave of offensive prospects. The time to go do something like that, in my opinion, is this offseason. Guys, final thoughts for the night. Jeremy, we'll start with you. Do you think this is the right time to go make that big substantial move, whether it's a big free agent, like, a, like we're talking like a Trevor Story, a Starling Marte, like a big-time free agent, or make a big-time trade to bring in the, the final piece that you think pushes you over the edge?
1: I do think it's time um, in part because they're running out of room. They've got guys pushing at the door who are ready to play in the big leagues. Um, they, I mean, they they've, they've got these guys coming. They've, they've filled out the rotation and they've got like eight guys in the rotation and then injuries and whatever. Um, so they've got all these pitchers and then they've got these hitters coming. We, we were like, where do you find room for Nick Prado? Where do you find room for MJ Melendez? Um, so, I this seems like the time. I also look at the records. Um just thinking uh, about how they how this all went down before was in uh, 2012 they had a 72 and 90 record. Um that's about where they're going to be this year. They might be a little bit better. Um 73 74 wins maybe uh depending on how this last week and a half goes. But yeah, I that's what I'm I'm thinking is that's when they did it before. Um they've got a lot of guys that there's not room for all of them and you don't want to just leave them at triple a forever, get some, get some value from them if you can't use them. Uh, So yeah, I think, I think now is, is, it makes the most sense to me. Jordan, I'll jump to you. Final thoughts.
3: I, there's a a log jam right now with some of those prospects being blocked by major league guys. Um, Something I've been thinking about with the pitchers lately I think it was Max. Yeah, Max mentioned you know the odds of all of them panning out to be even average players very very low. One of them may get injured. Two of them may not pan out at all. You know, if two of those guys can one become an above average starter, one become an average one, something like that. One go to the bullpen. Maybe Singer can't figure it out as a starter. Um, they're going to keep giving him chances because his top two pitches are really good. Uh, maybe he moves to the bullpen eventually. Like, do they? With what I've noticed, and I think uh, Lesky brought it up, some of those guys look like they're getting tired. And next year, do you potentially bring in, and this ties into Brad Keller too, Brad Keller's kind of the elder statesman there. He's not necessarily the veteran you want leading those guys. I don't think, and I love Brad Keller. Do they bring in a not Mike Miner veteran where like he's just there and he's not very good? Do they get a good veteran pitcher to not block guys like Daniel Lynch or Carlos Hernandez, who could lead a staff one day or whatever that can, a maybe you go with a six man rotation to preserve those arms a little bit because you can't go from zero to 60. You're seeing what happens there. They didn't throw much last year, all that stuff. Give them a little bit of leeway, teach them how to, um, really good article in the athletic that I read Cleveland, Like they would have this collaborative thing where the veterans would tell the young guys like, Hey, this is what you should experiment with. This is what you should do. They reciprocate that the Royals have that with the young guys. They all are really close knit. They compete, but they don't have that one veteran who's like, Hey guys, I'll take you under my wing. I'll teach you how to do this. I'll give you feedback on that. I'll calm you down. I think there's value in that. I don't know if you go with a six-band rotation. Like we said, they have like eight guys they are going to have more coming up, um, but the odds of all of them panning out anyway are low. Um, it does make it more difficult to see what you have, but at the same time, maybe with fewer innings pitched um, over the course of a long season, they perform a little bit better. Um, I'm just kind of spitballing. That would be the one move that I consider making if it's not like a, a Starling Marte or something like that.
2: Max, final thoughts, close us out. You know, I don't know if they really have a big move in them necessarily. I think Dayton Moore has talked more about having a, a more sustainable approach. And frankly, they've been burned on a lot of free agents. Uh, you know, certainly the James Shields move panned out. But, and, and even that, I think it's debatable, to, at least for some fans, but I think it largely panned out. Um, but, uh, you know, they've talked about not necessarily, not necessarily wanting to push their chips in for one small window. It's more like we want to take, an approach like Cleveland does where they're good every year. And when they get to a player um, uh, that, that's kind of close to free agency, we're going to, you know, we're going to trade them. And that's, I think that's kind of where John Sherman comes from where, you know, he wants to have a team that's competitive year in, year out and not have the big drop-off like the Royals had. So I don't know if I see them making a big move. I don't think they're really at a point where they should either. Uh, I think I'd like to see Bobby Wood Jr. and the young, hitters get their feet wet because they're probably going to struggle for the first year or two. And then I think once they get, uh, once they're kind of adapted, once you've kind of got your pitching situation sorted out, I think then you can kind of make a splash if that's what they feel like they, 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 are going to do Then You know, that's the point because you remember when they got James Shields, like by that point, Eric Hosmer, Mike Moustakas, Lorenzo Cain, uh, all those guys were in the big leagues. They weren't having a ton of success yet, but they, were second-year players at the big league level, um, and, and it was, you know, at that point that they brought in James Shields to kind of teach these young players how to win. We haven't gone to that level yet. Let's give these young players a chance to at least get acclimated. You know, maybe bring in some veterans to help to make that transition, but I don't know if I see a big, big splash quite yet.
0: I I, I hadn't really considered that stance until, until you brought that up tonight, and I on the surface, without giving it much time to think about, because again, I hadn't considered it, I think I disagree. But I at least appreciate the points you bring up, and I think the if you were really, if you really, really bought into the idea that you had, you had this time that the fans wouldn't get antsy, your owner wouldn't get antsy, that everybody's just going to be okay, giving it another year, <clears throat> I, I could see where that would be beneficial. I also think you've got a couple guys now who if you wait too long to trade them could tank their value. I could see it coming back, but I still think like Jackson Coar. if you tried to trade him, I still think he has really good trade value, even though he's been terrible in the big leagues. Like somebody will look at him. See that he was one of the best pitchers in AAA all year. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've been talking too much today. have been lecturing all day and stuff. Um, somebody will still trade for him, but I, I also think with a bad 2022 could plummet his value. Right. So, um, I, I do think this is the right off season. I will give that some more thought, though, Max, and, and, and the idea that they could potentially still admit to being another year away. I do think it would be a bold strategy at this time, though. Um, <clears throat> all right. I have clearly lost the ability to speak. Thank you all for listening very much. Um, we will get back with you next week. Jeremy and I will be joined by, hopefully, a um, well-known host, so, or a well-known guest onto the show. Yeah. So, um, We'll look forward to being back here with you guys next week. Until then, you can follow Jordan, like you said, over at Footnoted on Twitter and over at Inside the Royals. Jeremy and Max both do great work for Royals Review. I am Alex Duvall. You can find me at Royals Farm Report at Royals Farm on Twitter. Thank you all again very much.